0: After fighting skeptics for over 40 years, researchers are finally getting respect using progesterone to treat brain injuries. Progesterone? You heard correctly. Welcome to our special series on future medicine. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Stein. Dr. Stein is a neuroscientist and Asa G. Candler Professor of Emergency Medicine at Emory University. Before returning to full-time research and training, he served in a variety of administrative positions, including Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, Vice Provost for Graduate Studies, and Vice President for Research at Emory. Dr. Stein's research has long focused on examining the processes underlying recovery of function after traumatic injury to the brain. Welcome to Reach MD.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here, Leslie. Uh,
0: Dr. Stein, it's really a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today, and your research has to be one of the most intriguing stories that I've ever heard about medicine. Please tell us, to begin with, how you got interested in traumatic brain injury.
1: Well, it started really in the days when I was a graduate student, and At the time, I was working to try to understand how the part of the brain called the hippocampus works to store memory. And at the time I was doing that, the prevailing way of thinking about the brain was that each and every structure had a specific function to play. These ideas go back to really 19th century thinking about the anatomy and physiology of the brain. And I was damaging the hippocampus. Uh, in those days as part of my doctoral dissertation. And I happened to notice that about maybe 20-25% of the animals that had these brain injuries that I thought were pretty carefully done seemed to be perfectly normal when I tested them on a variety of of behaviors that were supposed to be due to the specific functions and role of the hippocampus. And I thought, well, at first that maybe I had made a mistake, maybe my Surgery wasn't very good, and so on. So I went back and I did the histology. And when I did the histology, I noticed that the animals that were performing very, very well, some of these animals had perfectly substantial lesions that were just as large as animals that were showing profound deficits. And I went to my professor and I said, you know, there's something funny going on here, and um, maybe we ought to look at this. Why are these animals acting normal when they have such a big brain injury? And he told me, basically, look, you know, that's just normal variability. And don't worry about it, because if you're going to start exploring those kinds of questions, which are not really... Consistent with what we're thinking, you'll never get your dissertation done. You'll be doing this stuff for basically all, all of your life. Turns out he was right. I, I did put it aside temporarily because I wanted to get through. I had a, a, a small infant and wife at the time and was pretty hungry uh, making $1,800 a year at the time oh my the fellowship. Gosh. And so we needed to get out. And I said, you know, probably prudence dictates that I should just focus on what my boss tells me to do. And I did and got my degree, and off I went to uh, MIT for a postdoc. And I came across the same kind of problems there, and they weren't really interested in studying this type of uh, question. And so I really had to put it off until I finally got my first job teaching at a small New England uh, university called Clark University. And it was there that I was able to examine this question in more detail. And that whole question of how animals and people recover from traumatic brain injury really became... I guess a quest and it was the focus of all of my research in many respects right up to today and led me to the kind of work that we're now doing finding ways to treat brain injury.
0: But going back, a quarter to a third of these animals had significant improvement in their functioning after these traumatic injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, How could they ever think that was normal variability?
1: Well, that's that's what led me. (laughs) It's an interesting question, but you know, years later, that's what led Dr. Stan Finger and I to write, I think, one of the first monographs on brain damage and recovery. And we have that as a quote, as one of our very first chapters, that, you know, this is just considered as an anomaly, the the thinking being is that if you have a brain damage, and most physicians, neurologists, neurosurgeons know that people respond to brain damage in very different ways, and it's not unusual to find sometimes people with very, very limited types of very focalized injuries showing a substantial amount of deficit, where others with very large injuries seem to do quite well and recover very dramatically. And that process of why some people recover better than others really became, in many respects, the focus of the the basic research that we were doing. And we went back, and I I had to kind of find a way to test out this idea to see that it wasn't just normal variability, per se, because that really didn't explain anything, but rather looking at models of injury that could help me understand the question a little better. And one of the things we did was there had been reports in the clinical literature going back to the turn of the 20th century that actually had been reported by the father of modern neurology, John Hewlings Jackson. And he had noted that when an injury occurs slowly, even in in important uh, brain stem structures, the outcome can be very different than if the same extent of injury occurs more rapidly. He called it the momentum of the lesion producing an effect on the brain. And I had read a paper when I was still a graduate student that was actually published, I believe, in 1959 by a neurosurgeon uh, whose name was John Adamitz. I even remember that. And he had looked at cats and had, and, and had looked at, at, at then what was supposed to be considered the center of consciousness and sleep and wakefulness in the brain, the brainstem reticular formation, it was called. And one of the things that profoundly struck me by this study was that when he damaged the structure in one stage, that is, in one operational setting, All of the animals died eventually within a short period of time. None of them ever regained consciousness. But then for some reason, he went back in and damaged the structures slowly. He made a a bunch of serial lesions. He did a little bit of damage, waited a week, did another little bit of damage, and so on. What he found under those conditions is that those cats that had the same extent of damage to this so-called critical structure of the brain that mediated consciousness and sensory awareness, when he did these slowly inflicted lesions, most of those animals uh, showed normal sleep-wake cycles. So I said, how, how can this be if this center is so critical? How do they recover from this if it's gone? And that led me to doing a much more of the work that I then proceeded to do, exploring this serial lesion phenomenon, as we called it. We've, and Stan and I wrote a number of papers about this. And it turns out that it wasn't just the brainstem reticular formation that you could damage in this way. And we published, I, I think, about... 20 papers, maybe even more, and certainly reviewed a lot more in the literature about that, showing that if you damaged uh, any structure, whether it was the frontal cortex, the occipital cortex, the part of the brain called the striatum, the hippocampus, and so on, that slow-growing injury to these structures produced an entirely different outcome than if the same damage was inflicted all at once. In other words, when we did the slow-growing injuries, the animals almost performed normally, or in many cases, as well as fully intact controls. And we called this the serial lesion phenomenon. And it turns out that as we went through the world literature and tried to find support for our ideas, there were a number of papers appearing in different journals supporting this, even in people. You know, you have to ask the question, how is it that you can remove a structure in its entirety on both sides of the brain and still get normal behavior? What were the mechanisms that were involved in all this? And when I was looking at this, people said, you know, this is nuts. It just it, it doesn't fit with the idea of structure-function relationships in the brain because how can an animal with both hippocampi on both sides of the brain that is removed with very, very large lesions still perform like a normal animal without special training or handling or drugs or anything like that. It was just the time of the injury that we were manipulating, the time between successive uh, damage to the brain. And that whole uh, series of experiments led me to think a lot about how the nervous system is organized. And I realized that not everybody or not every organism is going to have this type of slow-growing injury that might occur, for example, as a result of a a slow-growing tumor in the brain. So the next logical question was, well, how can we make recovery happen? How can we deal with it? How can we promote it when you don't have slow-growing injuries? Is there some way to induce that plasticity of function? Even in more dramatic cases of injury. And that's literally the guiding principle that I had through almost all the 40 years of effort that I have put into this research on CNS repair. And it led to a book, a number of books, the one I did with Sandfinger and another one called Brain Repair, which was published in 1995.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Stein from Emory University. We are discussing how he became interested in researching traumatic brain injury. So, Don, let me get this straight. You basically told the Nobel Prize winners that they were all wrong, right? You
1: know, that's that's strong language. I, I never walked up to anybody that won a Nobel Prize and said, hey, I think you're wrong, but, you know, clearly... I did publish this the first paper on this serial lesion phenomenon looking at the frontal cortex the hippocampus and I think the amygdala we published in science back in the 60s it was and so it did get people a little bit, I have to say, people who had a very strong commitment to the very strong doctrine of strict localization of function clearly thought that this work you know was either artifactual or didn't make much sense and you know what happened the way in which the work got evolved was that in fact, I remember Stan Finger was working on sensory motor cortex injuries and t- trying to specify that part of the brain that controls tactile discrimination and what's and, and motor discrimination and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and he replicated our papers, even with somatosensory cortex injury. And that's what led us to this subsequent long collaboration. But initially, he started out thinking that this work doesn't make sense to me. Can't fit with what we know. But, you know, with all this work on localization of function, it's not an absolute fact. And we know a lot more about the nature of plasticity in the central nervous system today. And there's lots been written about it. But uh, it's a a concept. It's a theory that happened to guide a lot of research, and it was very productive. It just necessarily didn't explain all the the nature uh, and complexity of how the the mammalian brain works.
0: Now, uh, we just have a few seconds left, but uh, I heard something about you being in a trailer and and having flamingos. (laughs) Tell us about that.
1: Well, that was here (laughs) at Emory uh, University. When I first got here, I came here as the dean of the graduate school, I think uh, they weren't quite prepared to expect that I was actually going to be a, an administrator and do research, and so we had to run around and find space for me and my team, and the best they could come up with at that time was this double-wide trailer, which served me uh, well for six years here while I continued to do the research. And I was basically working full-time at the time as an administrator, so I would go over very late in the day, usually four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon, meet with my students, and we would stay till late at night. That was the system we worked on. And uh, the place was, you know, reminded me of um, of some of these things you see in the movies. And so we figured, well, if we're going to be in a trailer, maybe we ought to decorate it a little better. So we got these, one of my graduate students ran out and got these uh, plastic flamingos that you see with the little spindly legs and pink. And we put them up front. The physical plant people didn't like that, so they took them down. And we had this running thing where I think we did it three or four times before they then decided to re-landscape the front so we couldn't do this by putting this huge rock <laughs> down in front of the trailer and then putting little evergreens around it. So we kind of compromised, and then we, we stopped the flamingos. But it was just really a little practical joke, and, and it, it, it brought attention to us. There's no question about <laughs> it. People were always remarking, what are those pink flamingos doing out in front of that trailer?
0: Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Donald Stein. We have been discussing how he began researching the effects of progesterone on brain injury and how it led to flamingos at Emory University. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to a special series on the future of medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.